This morning, as we read the scripture, you see that there's multiple passages listed. We're just reading Genesis chapter 2 this morning. So if you will stand with me in honor of the reading of God's word. Starting in Genesis chapter 2, verse 1. Thus the heavens and the earth were completed in all their host. By the seventh day, God completed his work, which he had done. And he rested on the seventh day from all his work, which he had done. Then God blessed the seventh day and sanctified it, because in it he rested from all his work which God had created and made. This is the account of the heavens and the earth when they were created, in the day that the Lord God made earth and heaven. Now no shrub of the field was yet in the earth, and no plant of the field had yet sprouted. For the Lord God had not sent rain upon the earth, and there was no man to cultivate the ground. But a mist used to rise from the earth and water the whole surface of the ground. Then the Lord God formed man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living being. The Lord God planted a garden toward the east in Eden, and there he placed the man whom he had formed. Out of the ground the Lord calls to grow every tree that is pleasing to the sight and good for food, the tree of life and also in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil." Now a river flowed out of Eden to water the garden, and from there divided became four rivers. The name of the first is Pishon. It flows around the whole land of Havilah, where there is gold. The gold of that land is good. The bdellium and the onyx stone are there. The name of the second river is Gihon, and it flows around the whole land of Cush. The name of the third river is Tigris. It flows east of Assyria. Then the fourth river is the Euphrates. Then the Lord God took the man and put him into the Garden of Eden to cultivate it, And to keep it, the Lord God commanded the man, saying, From any tree of the garden you may eat freely, but from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day you eat of it you will surely die. And all of God's people said, Amen. You may be seated. This morning I've already mentioned that I'm introducing a new sermon series. And so I want you to go ahead and take your pen, if you've got a pen, and write in your bulletin something for me, okay? Uh, we didn't, I don't think we got this in here, and so I want to write this down. Write Genesis chapter 3 and Romans chapter 5. Okay, What that is is your homework for next week. Okay, uh, Each week I'm going to start putting this. We'll, we'll have it on the website. We'll have it in other places. But before you come, I'm going to have some scripture passages that if you read it ahead of time will help you as far as understanding what we're reading and what we're studying on Sunday morning. It's not necessary, but it's a good thing to do. So as as God's people, let's be faithful to get in the Word. So next week, we're going to look at the fall. And so let's uh, go ahead before you come. Read Genesis chapter 3. Read Romans 5. And I think it will help you as we get into the the sermon time. So let's do that. Be faithful to do that together. The series that we're starting this morning, I just called the story of redemption. Okay, and so over the next few months, what we're going to be doing is studying passages that trace the big picture, the big story and narrative of the Bible. You guys know there are 66 books found in the Bible, right? And some 40 or so authors. And that through the inspiration of the Spirit, we find in those 66 books one grand narrative, one story that starts in the beginning and runs all the way through. Now sometimes, as, uh, where this story is the story of God redeeming a people for Himself and for His glory. He has, but he has one plan that he carries throughout the entire story. 
Now, sometimes I think as we get into our own personal studies, sometimes in our Sunday school classes, sometimes on our own, we want to read one or two verses, and we want to stop and we want to think about them and chew on them and ask questions and analyze them and figure out how can we obey these few verses, right? And there's nothing wrong with that. That is a good thing to do. But sometimes we get so focused on looking at one or two verses that we forget to see how they fit into the big picture of all that God is doing and all that we find in the Scripture. So what we're going to do is we're going to look, for instance, at the story of redemption. We're going to study the fall of mankind into sin. We'll look at the flood. We'll look at God's judgment on sin. We'll also focus on the unconditional covenant or the promise that God is going to make to Abraham right here in the book of Genesis. But even before that, in Genesis 3.15, we have a promise of redemption that already begins. So we'll continue to trace that promise throughout the Bible. We'll look at the Passover, how it points to Christ. We'll look at the covenant, the promise that God made to King David, that from David's family there would be a king and priest who would arise and who would reign and rule forever. And we know, we know that that's pointing to Christ, but we're going to trace those promises. But you know, even when we get to Christ, right, we get redemption. We get salvation on the cross. But you know the story doesn't end there, right? It's going to continue on into the future. So we immediately, or you see them early after the ascension of Christ, they begin to turn their focus on the second coming of Christ, that He is going to come again, that all of history is rushing from rushing towards eternity, towards God's plan, fulfilling God's plan of redemption. And so we're going to look at that over the, the next few months. Now, in today's sermon, we're going to, I want to connect you the beginning of history, the beginning of that story of redemption, all the way to the end. We jumped a little bit from, from Genesis to Revelation and other places last week. We're going to do the same thing today. We won't do that every week, I promise. But I want us to connect the story to the end. Many would say that the story of redemption really begins before God made anything. In eternity past, when the only thing that we know of in existence was the triune God. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit, the eternal Godhead was already there. And many would say that in their perfect fellowship together, before anything else was done, God determined to create and redeem a people for His own glory. In other words, all the plan of history, all that will work out, all that we're looking forward to, was already planned out before God made anything. You say, well, how do we know that? Listen, you don't have to turn there, but listen to Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 through 8. There it says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. Listen to this. Just as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world. In other words, the plan of redemption started before the foundation of the world itself. Then it continues, it says, He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world that we would be holy and blameless before Him. In love, He predestined us to adoption to His Son through Jesus Christ to Himself according to the kind intention of His will, to the praise of the glory of His grace, which He freely bestowed on us in the Beloved. In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of His grace which He lavished on us. I read that passage in Ephesians to point out two things to you. Number one, that God chose us and all who would believe in Christ before the foundation of the world. 
that the plan was established before he created anything. The second part of that is that his plan was to bring us into his family through Jesus Christ. In other words, the coming of Christ, his dying on the cross for our sins, that was not plan B. Here's what I mean by that. We look at the fall and we look at Genesis and we go, well, we know what happens there. Adam and Eve eat what they're not supposed to eat. And we'll look at the fall next week. And we go, well, God was surely upset and surprised, right? If he had a plan before the foundation of the world to save us through Jesus, he already knew what was coming, didn't he? And he already had a plan established. And so we need to be careful in how we speak of that. God was not surprised at all at the fall of man in the garden. He already knew that what would come. He made a plan to rescue us so that we would be to the praise of the glory of his grace for all eternity. In Christ, it said we had redemption through his blood. That's the story of redemption. God made a plan before he did anything, and he's going to continue to carry out that plan all the way until the end. There is nothing hidden from God's sight, nothing that happens outside of his will. One last passage is to point this out before we jump back into Genesis. In John chapter 17, verses 4 and 5, it says this, Jesus says this, I glorified you on the earth having accomplished the work which you have given me to do. Now, Father, glorify me together with yourself with the glory which I had with you before the world was. You hear what Jesus said there? Listen, I've come. I have accomplished the work. That is the very work of redemption that we decided to do. Jesus came willingly. He knew exactly what was before him when he arrived on the earth. But Jesus didn't just pop into existence at Christmas. He didn't just pop into existence when he was born of the Virgin Mary. He was the pre-existent, eternal God. He had no beginning. He has no end. And so Christ has always been there. That's why he can say, Father, I've accomplished the work of redemption. And so now glorify me with the glory which I had with you before the world was. I love that because God is the sovereign God sitting on his throne. He's ruling and reigning over the universe. And we know exactly what it is that he's doing. Now, back in Genesis chapter 2. We've already read uh, much of this chapter this morning. Take a look down at verse 8. As we do this, I want you to look at, to pay very close attention to the details that we find in the garden. In verse 8, if you look there. It says, the Lord God planted a garden toward the east in Eden, and he placed the man, and, he, and there he placed the man whom he had formed. So very simply, we look at the garden, and it begins with this. Uh, the man was, that God himself planted the garden of Eden. The man was put there to cultivate it and to keep it. Verse 15 of the same chapter, if you turn over a page, or in my Bible, you turn over a page in verse 15. It says, then the Lord God took the man and put him into the garden of Eden to cultivate it, and to keep it. In other words, God planted the garden. He created mankind and he put them in the garden to cultivate it and to keep it. He gave Adam a job. Here you go. Cultivate this garden. You're my representatives here. You're here to do this work. So we know that, again, God created it. Verse 9, God provides food and these, there's a few specific trees that are, meant, are, that are mentioned 
Verse 9 says, Out of the ground the Lord calls to grow every tree that is pleasing to the sight and good for food. In other words, God provided their sustenance. He provided all that they needed. Then it says the tree of life also in the midst of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So we find not only did God provide for them, but these two special trees are mentioned. The first of the first we know well is the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. The second is the tree of life. I mean, we always get it's always so hard to, to look at this and realize in the garden, the tree of life was there. And if they had gone to that tree and eaten of it, they would have lived forever. Right? Isn't that what it tells us? Uh, if you look in chapter 3, verse 8, we see that that is indeed the case. Uh, we don't have to go there. We'll go there in a minute. I think we'll come back to it. But they could have, actually, it's chapter 3, verse 22. If you well, Go ahead and turn there if you want to. We'll come right back into chapter 2. But chapter 3, verse 22 says, Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil, and now he might stretch out his hand and also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. They could have eaten of that tree and had everlasting life right there in the garden. And we know that that's not the way it works out uh, because in, in, in Genesis 3.22, after they sin, they're sent out of the garden and banned from ever returning so they could not eat of the tree of life and live forever. But remember what was there in the garden as we go along. God planted it. He put the man there. And in the midst of it, we find that tree of life. And they are sent out from it eternally. Now, you guys know it was an act of God's grace for that to happen. Here's what, here's what think about it. They came in a sense, sort of a state of innocence. They didn't apparently know evil in the way that we do. They didn't have the sin problem yet that we have. But then they eat of the tree of knowledge of good and evil and they fall into sin. And suddenly things begin to go wrong, right? Would it have been an act of God's grace to say, hey, I'm going to leave you in that state and you're going to live forever in a state in which you are full of sin and strife and violence and evil. God had a better plan, a plan of redemption, a plan that we'll see as we get to the end is even better. But He sends them out from the garden for that. Verse 10. Go back to Genesis chapter 2, verse 10. It says, Now a river flowed out of Eden to water the garden, and there it divided and became four rivers. Just know this in your mind. Keep this in your mind. There was a garden flowing through, uh, sorry, a river flowing through Eden. From there it split into four rivers to provide for the land even around it. But God had provided the sustenance, the life-giving water. The river was right there in the midst of the garden. And we're going to come back to that in later chapters or in later points today. Look at verse 11. It says, The name of the first river is Pishon. It flows around the whole land of Havilah, where there is gold. The gold of that land is good. The bdellium and the onyx are there. And I point that out to notice this. Take note of this, right? Not only do we have, we have the trees, of knowledge, the tree of life. We have the tree of knowledge of good and evil. We'll lump those together. Then we have the river that's flowing there. We have these precious stones that we find here in Genesis. All those are physical descriptions of just things that we, it says, are there in the garden, right? But I want also to consider the spiritual reality of the Garden of Eden. And first is this, the blessing of God's presence. In other words, God actually spoke with His people. 
He could walk among them. Uh, not only did God plant the garden, not only did he place them there, he spoke directly with Adam and Eve. Quickly flip over to Genesis chapter 3, verse 8. It says, They heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Then the Lord called, God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, because I was naked so I hid myself. We'll stop there because we'll come back to it next week. But we find him, God speaking, not just speaking the garden, but it was God's habit to walk with them in the garden. Says he walked there in the cool of the day. It suggests that this was a regular pattern right here at the beginning of history, that God would come and meet with his people and talk with them. So perhaps the greatest blessing in the garden is this. God was there with his people. Unfortunately, we saw there in post-fall, they hide themselves from God. But in the Garden of Eden, they were able to walk with and speak with God himself. Another spiritual reality, the second spiritual reality we see here, is there was no sin. Right? We don't have to go into detail. We know that. They had not yet eaten of the, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. They had not sinned at this point. The third thing that we find there is there was no death, or at least there was the potential for no death. There were no sickness, no tears. There was no curse to be found. And in that sense, it really was a paradise. And so we think about what we just found in the Garden of Eden. This beautiful place where there is no sin, where there doesn't have to be death, where God Himself is there walking among His people, that He's provided food for them. He's provided this great river that is providing sustenance for the garden. And even the potential there for there to be eternal life. You say, well, what does this have to do with the story of redemption, the big story that God is carrying out in the Bible? In the beginning, there was this place with God's presence, with no sin, no death, and a very specific physical description. Now, I want us to look now and move toward the end of the story. You see, all of creation, all that we find is rushing towards the end of the story, rushing towards eternity. God's plan is unfolding, and I want you to see what happens at the very end so turn in your Bible all the way to Revelation chapter 21. I'm going to read in verses 1 through 7 here. It says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth passed away, and there is no longer any sea. And I saw that the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men, and he will dwell among them, and they shall be his people, and God himself will be among them. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and there will no longer be any death, there will no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. The first things have passed away. And he who sits on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. And he said, Right, for these words are faithful and true. Then he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. I will come to the one who thirsts. From, I will give to the one who thirsts from the spring of the water of life without cost. He who overcomes will inherit these things, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. Notice here in the text, church, that there is a new heaven 
and a new earth. That there is a restoration of all things. It says that the old one, the earth of Eden, the one in which we now live, has passed away. It is gone. It is no longer with us. Now, that aligns with Second uh, Peter chapter 3, verse 10, which says this, But the day of the Lord will come like a thief in which the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat, and the earth and its works will be burned up. You know, it's interesting when you get to the, to the flood, and he makes this promise, listen, I'm never going to flood the earth again and destroy all of mankind through the flood. The New Testament says the earth is now reserved for fire. That at the end, it won't be destroyed again by water. It will be destroyed by fire. And it will be remade in all of this cleanse. We're going to come back to that. But some passages in the Bible, interestingly enough, some passages describe it like this, right? The earth is passed away. It is destroyed. It is burned up. But in other places, for instance, in Acts chapter 3, it talks about the restoration of all things. In other words, not just the idea of it's burned up, but it's almost as all it will be burned in such a way that all the evil, all the bad things will be done away with. This earth will be restored and renewed so much that we may as well say it's brand new, right? And so that is what all of creation is longing for and rushing towards, that this sinful planet, right, sinful humanity and all the destruction, all the sicknesses, all the death, all the hardships we go through, that's going to get put away at the end. And all things get made new. Listen to this. This is from Romans chapter 8, verse 19. It says, For the anxious longing of, all, of the creation waits eagerly for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of Him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself also will be set free from its slavery to corruption into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know this, that the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth together until now. And not only this, but we also ourselves, having the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, waiting eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our body. For in hope we've been saved, but hope that is not but hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he already sees? But if we hope for what we do not see with perseverance, we eagerly await for it. All of creation was subjected and put under the curse of sin. And all of creation is groaning and longing for the day where Christ's people will be revealed and finally, ultimately redeemed once and for all. In other words, he says, we're longing in our bodies for the day that we'll be adopted as his sons. We know the spiritual reality that when we place our faith in Him, He has already brought us into His family. But there is a resurrection coming. There's a day where these bodies will be done away with and we will be made whole in the new heavens and the new earth. That we will dwell with Him forever. And just as we long for that day, says all of the earth, all of creation longs for the day where sin and the curse is put away with. It longs for the day when this is done and we are back in God's presence and His glory. So back in Revelation, all of creation again is longing for this day of redemption. But let's study this new earth. What are the details given to us? Let's start out this time with the spiritual reality. First this, God's presence is restored. Look at verse, back in Revelation 21 verse 3. 
There's this loud throne voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men. He will dwell among them, and they shall be his people, and God himself will be among them. Notice the emphasis there on God's presence. His tabernacle, that is his tent, his dwelling place will be among who? Men. It will be among mankind. It will be among us. Then it says right after that again, he will dwell among them. Then it says they will be his people. Then again it says God himself will be among them. It keeps repeating that for a reason. In Eden we had this beautiful presence of God where he walked with us in the day. Now we have in the new creation God's tabernacle, his very dwelling place, being joined together with mankind. That he's going to live and walk among us. We will again live in his presence. Church, you will see Jesus face to face. You will stand before the creator of the universe. We will walk with him in the city. We will worship him and know him in all his splendor. Very quickly, turn over to Revelation chapter 22, verse 3. It says, there will no longer be any curse. The throne of God and the Lamb will be in it, and His bondservants will serve Him. We see, again, we see that Jesus is there. There is no sin. There is no curse. So in, in Eden, we had no curse. We had no sin at the beginning. And that has been restored to us at the end. Third, there is no more death in the new heavens and the new earth. Look at Revelation chapter 21, verse 4. It says, He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will no longer be any death. There will no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. The first things have passed away. Church, do you hear what it's saying there? That from we have gone from paradise in the beginning all the way to paradise at the end. That God has worked out His story of redemption of recreating us, of making us better, putting us in even a better spot than they were in the Garden of Eden. If it, we have gone from creation to new creation. We've gone from Eden to the new Jerusalem, from God's presence back into God's presence at the very end. But I want you to take a long moment before we go on to look at the physical description of this new earth. In Eden, God planted the garden. In Revelation, God is the creator and the one who builds the city. I want you to consider Hebrews chapter 11. It's there in Hebrews 11. It speaks about Abraham. And we know the story of Abraham. We're going to study it in a couple of weeks. But Abraham, you guys know he was sent out from the land of his fathers to go to a place that God would show him. And what Hebrews 11 tells us is that even though he did leave and went to that homeland, Abraham recognized a deeper truth, that he wasn't actually looking for an earthly country. He wasn't looking for just any old earthly city that God would show him. It's not even the promised land as we think of it. He wanted God's presence. Listen to Hebrews chapter 11, verses 9 and 10. By faith he lived as an alien in the land of promise as in a foreign land dwelling in tents with Isaac and Jacob, fellow heirs of the same promise. For he was looking for the city which has foundations, whose architect and builder is God himself. That Abraham began to have an idea of 
there is something better coming. And is that not the city we find here at the end of Revelation chapter 21? Now, uh, as we think about the physical description, not only is it a city, and if we look at this, uh, go down to... Let's just go ahead and read the descriptions we find it. Look down at verse 10. Chapter 21, verse 10. So he carried me away in the spirit to a great and high mountain and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. Having the glory of God, her brilliance was like a very costly stone, as a stone of crystal clear jasper. It had a great and high wall with twelve gates, and at the gates twelve angels and names were written on them, which are the names of the twelve tribes of the sons of Israel. There were three gates on the east and three gates on the north and three gates on the south and three gates on the west. And the wall of the city had twelve foundation stones and on them were the twelve names of the twelve apostles of the Lamb. The, the one who spoke with me had a gold measuring rod to measure the city and its gates and its walls. The city is laid out as a square and its length is as great as the width. And he measured the city with a rod. 1,500 miles its length and width and height are equal. Church, you guys begin to see that there's this city that has been built whose very foundations have been laid by God. And we find all these precious stones just as we found in the Garden of Eden. We find them now adorning and decorating the walls of God's city. But we also saw the gates and the representative of the 12 tribes of Israel, right? Of the sons and the descendants of Abraham who would come after him. And so we think about that 12. We have all the promises made to God, to Abraham carried out at the very end in the new city, the new Jerusalem, where all those promises are finally, ultimately, completely fulfilled. But then it talks about the, the foundation stones of the city. What, whose names were on those foundation stones? But, the, but wasn't it the 12 apostles? As the gospel has gone forth as now, we finally find again the completion of God's promises, the new covenant that He has promised and carried out, the story of redemption being completed, that all those who have come in to God's, come in through God's covenants, through His promises, find themselves now in the new city, in the new Jerusalem. There they are and will be in His presence forever. We see in Revelation 22.1, if you turn there, There, just as there was a river in Eden, we find in Revelation 22:1 a river in this new city. It says, Then he showed me a river, the water of life, clear as crystal, coming from the throne of God and of the Lamb. In the middle of its street, on either side of the river, was the tree of life, bearing twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit every month, and the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations." Church, you see again that as there was, a gar- there was a river in the Garden of Eden, we find a river there in the new city. Connecting is again beginning to end that there is something even better in the final fulfillment of this. But the city is there providing for His people. And what do we find on the banks of the river? The tree of life. The tree of life is there that if you would reach out your hand and eat of it, you will live forever. We missed it in the Garden of Eden but we are given it freely as we come into the new Jerusalem, as we walk into eternity. Remember those precious stones, right? We already talked about that. 
But in Revelation 21, it says the very streets are made of gold. But you also have the description we talked about, the walls and the foundations. But again, the imagery here draws us back into the story of redemption, the fulfilled promises to Abraham and all the way through the apostles. In the wall, there was jasper. The city was pure gold in verse 18. To the material of the wall was jasper and the city was pure gold like clear glass. It's precious. It's beautiful. It's worth more than anything we could imagine. I hope that you see now the end of the story of redemption. That once we arrive there in God's presence, we will glorify Him and praise Him forever and ever. It's the hope that we have, the hope of the resurrection, an eternal home far better than that of Eden. Guys, have you ever stopped and thought of this? That it really is one story from beginning to end? That it really begins with the Garden of Eden and there's a restoration of Eden, but it's even better than we can imagine when we finally arrive at the end of God's story of redemption. I'll say this. This is speculation. This is not my notes, and so it's kind of risky for me to say this. You know what we don't find in the in the gar in the New Jerusalem, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And there are some that will say, "Well, we just won't know what we'll be back in the innocent state of Adam and Eve." You know, I don't believe that. I think it's not there because we've already eaten of it. And I actually think this was purposeful. So now, as we arrive in the New Jerusalem, not only do we have the knowledge of good and evil, and that way it says we are like God back in Genesis 2 or Genesis 3, but now we have the power to not desire that evil. That there we will finally always choose to glorify Him and do what is right. And here's why I believe this, right? Because if suddenly we lose the knowledge of good and evil, what are we praising Jesus about for all eternity? When we're singing this beautiful song, uh, the song of creation that we looked at last week, where He receives the glory and the power and dominion for His grace that He poured out from us, if we suddenly don't understand why He did it, well, I don't understand, sir, why, why did Jesus have to die on the cross again? We will know for all of eternity the, the wretchedness of our sin as it was, we will be overwhelmed by His grace and mercy that He pours out on us. There's a reason why the, the New Testament can tell us this momentary light affliction is producing in us a weight of glory far beyond all that we can imagine. That this suffering that we go through in this life is nothing compared to the joy set before us. And we have to always remember that. Now, as we get ready to go into a time of invitation this morning, I want you to turn to Revelation 22, verse 17. It says, The Spirit and the Bride say, Come, and let the one who hears say, Come. Let the one who is thirsty, Come. Let the one who, take, one who wishes take the water of life without cost. All that has been promised, all the story of redemption is held out before you today. He's, Jesus tells you, if you hear, let the one who hears come. And He is offering you eternal life and redemption in a place in His promises. 
that the gospel has been preached and made known to you. How do you get the water of life? Well, John chapter 4, Jesus is talking to this woman at the well, and you know it, John 4, chapter 4, verse 10. Just Jesus answered her and said, If you knew the gift of God, and who it is who says to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. She said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where then do you get that living water? You're not greater than our father Jacob, are you? Who gave us this well and drank it of himself and his sons and his cattle? Jesus answered and said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will thirst again. But everyone who drinks of the water that I will give him shall never thirst. But the water that I will give him will, be, will become in him a well of water springing up to eternal life. Church, the invitation to come and to have the inheritance laid up for you in heaven, to have eternal life, to drink of the water of life, and to eat of the fruit fruit of the tree of life is freely given to us by the grace of God. And so if you have never called on Jesus and asked Him to save you, today is the day where He is saying, if you hear the words, you hear the message, Come, and let the one who hears say, Come, and let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who wishes take the water of life without cost. Jesus died on that cross for the purpose of redeeming us so that we could be restored into God's presence, so that we could have this hope for all eternity. And He's waiting for you to come. Come down today if you've never named Him, and I would love to walk you through the Scriptures and show you how to be saved. He's called us to be saved. He's called us to be baptized. He's called us to come. So I'm going to pray. Then we'll have our invitation. Father, You have given us such great hope that there is a story of redemption, a cohesive narrative that runs through the Bible. Father, You have a plan and before the foundation of the world, You made it and You loved us. and You designed a plan to Rescue us and save us. Father, I thank You for the hope that is laid up for us in the new Jerusalem, the new creation that awaits, that all of history is rushing towards that. And Father, I pray that no one here would be turned away from that city, that no one here would miss the blessing of dwelling with God forever. Father, You've given us great hope, but You've asked us to come and beg mercy of You, to ask You to save us Father, we freely acknowledge our sin, freely acknowledge that we do not deserve to be in Your presence. But Father, we also know that the free gift of God, Your free gift to us, is eternal life in Christ Jesus. That You have loved us, that You have sent Him to die for us while we were yet sinners. That all who would call on Him would be saved and have eternal life. Father, if there's anyone here today that has not called on You, has not been saved, Father, I pray that today they would come and give their life to You. Father, I pray that they too would be brought in to this wonderful salvation. Father, I thank You for Your blessings. Father, I pray even now the Spirit would move, that we would all look forward to the day with hope, the day of Your redemption. Father, we thank You in the name of Christ. Amen.